Welcome. I am back. Uh, we are back from vacation. I am back from vacation. We had a wonderful time, um, but I really, really did miss you, and I'm extremely excited to be back in the work here with you. We were down in South Carolina. We went to the beach. We spend most of our time under shelters, um, so you can't tell. Um, we're too white for the sun, um, so we hide. Um, but then I can now officially confirm to you that I-95 is the worst road in the world. Um, so it took me 14 hours to get back yesterday. It was a long, long day. Um, so besides my wife and kids and you guys, I think I-95 is like God's greatest sanctification tool in my life. Um, so, But I made it. Um, we're here, and I'm extremely excited now to be able to open up God's Word with you again and get back into uh, the Scriptures. But now, for the first time since I've been here, it's not in Mark, um, and I am very, very sad about that. If you're new here, what we do is we just take books of the Bible and we preach through them. That's it. Um, I'm not that interesting. I don't have that much that's worth um, listening to. Um, so if God actually wrote the Bible and said this, this is his word, well, let's, let's see what that says. Um, so we just take a scripture and we work through it verse by verse um, every Sunday. So we finished Mark. We were in it for 13 months. And now um, we are off to the book of Ruth, um, which you can find on page 222 if you're looking in the um, Pew Bible. I got to listen uh, to a lot of sermons um, yesterday in the car. I got to listen to Pastor Rob, um, his sermon from last week. He did an excellent job, I thought, um, preaching um, Christ um, from the Old Testament. And that's exactly what I wanted him um, to do. Because my goal here is to always alternate series um, between the New Testament and then the Old Testament. Right? We just did long New Testament series. We're going to do a short Old Testament series. It will do something in the New again come back and do something wrong in the old. Why? Well, because we're going to strongly emphasize that the whole Bible is God's Word, right? The Old Testament is just as inspired and just as important as the New Testament. But many Christians just, they don't read it. We don't know anything about the Old Testament. And when we do um, read it, we read it, oh, there's these nice stories and there's some good um, moral lessons. We, we like that stuff. And, and yes, that's there. Um, but the point that we really want to hammer um, with this series and Old Testament series to come is that the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus and the gospel. If you've come at all to Sunday school over this last year, you've just heard me belabor this point um, over and over again. Um, we cannot any longer read the Old Testament without taking into consideration what has happened in the New Testament. Um, for it is in the New Testament that Jesus just shows up and then very boldly um, proclaims that the Old Testament was entirely about him. Two really important passages I, I like to cover a lot. I just want to read them for you and just kind of just set the stage for what we're going to do in the Old Testament, right? This is how we should interpret um, the Old Testament. First comes from John chapter 5. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They don't believe in him. Um, and he says to them in verse 39, you search the scriptures, again, Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament, you search the Old Testament scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Then in verse 46, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would be, believe me, for he wrote about me. Luke, uh, in, in John 1, 45, Philip, he meets Jesus, spends some time with him, he runs to Nathaniel and he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Luke 24, the most famous passage. Jesus has resurrected. He's on the road with some of his disciples. They don't recognize him. And he tells them in verse 27, and verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then verse 44 says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Moses, Psalms, prophets. 
That's the whole Old Testament. Right? And here Jesus says, all of that stuff is about me. Right? He's the point of the Old Testament. He, it all points to and foreshadows and builds towards him. Thus, as Christians, we must read the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament. So as we, as we turn our attention to an Old Testament book, as we look at Ruth, we're going to learn all kinds of, of things, right? We're going to see the amazing loyalty of Ruth. We're going to see Boaz, this, this, this kinsman redeemer. There's all kinds of moral lessons we can draw from the book. And also, many people, ladies, love the book because this is a nice romance story, right? I think that's sexist to say, right? This is a nice kind of romance love story. It's got this happy kind of princess-like ending, right? This is a really, really good um, and heartwarming story. And all that stuff is good, right? But none of that is the focus of the book of Ruth, right? What we're going to look at is how God is the main character of the book of Ruth. And what I want our focus to be in these next four weeks is to see what we can learn about him as well as his amazing plan to save sinners, which obviously culminates in Jesus Christ. Ruth is another step in that redemptive process. Ruth is ultimately about Jesus. This is going to be the gospel according to Ruth. And this morning we're just going to do one chapter. Four weeks, a chapter each week. And chapter one just kind of sets the stage. right? It introduces us to the characters. It introduces the major conflict in the story. And it kind of hints at the end of the first chapter at the coming resolution to that conflict. And I want to focus on three things on the three headings um, this morning. I try to get a little fancy with this. I'm not sure if it really worked, but I liked it. Um, Ruth chapter 1. Uh, the, the first point we're going to look at is how um, the night, you've heard the cliche, the night is darkest before the dawn. The first five verses are really, really rough um, in this book. Um, then we're going to look at how, though, the dawn of a new day, right, it's, it's divine. It is from God. But I want to really focus on the very also um, difficult truth, but important truth, that the dark is also divine. Right? I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we get there. That God is even behind that and working and using the darkness as well. Listen, if you've ever experienced a difficult time in your life, and if you haven't, you're lying. Uh, maybe you're experiencing one um, right now. If you've ever just felt completely enveloped or surrounded by darkness, wondering where God is, what he is doing, fairly confident that he's doing nothing, it seems, then listen, the book of Ruth is for you. Right? This is a book about faith in the midst of tragedy. This is a book about God's mysterious providence and his workings even when he seems to be the most absent. The book of Ruth is just, it's about real life. And it's an extremely ordinary book. Right? There are no miracles, there are no wonders, there are no angels or burning bushes or parting seas or plagues or visions. or None of that is in the book of Ruth. It's just ordinary people in the middle of everyday life. Well, listen, that's us. Right? We are a bunch of ordinary people in the middle of everyday life. And Ruth shows us very clearly how even for God's people, life can be very difficult. But in the midst of these difficulties, right, God is still God. Right? He is still in control and He is still working. Right? So my prayer for these four weeks is that Ruth will be a great reminder and a great comfort to us um, of these truths. Right? So just look down at your copies of the Scripture. In Ruth chapter 1, we always read a passage of Scripture, so no matter how bad the sermon is, you've still got Scripture. Right? That's the most important part. So I'm going to read the whole chapter um, starting in um, verse 1. Um, follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose um, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore remain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and you are God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for your word. Um, Father, I am extremely excited uh, about getting to dive in um, to your word, and I pray um, that everyone in here is as well. Father, give us a heart and a passion um, to hear from you um, through your scriptures. Um, Lord, this time is not about me or how clever or intelligent um, or funny I can be. Um, Father, this time is about you and about your word. Um, so, Father, move me aside. Um, bring these truths to life. Um, apply them um, to our hearts and show us um, your great and glorious um, plan of redemption and how you are God in all circumstances and how you are always working for the good of your people. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently just read um, Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities, and he famously begins it with the line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That does not apply at all um, in this situation, right? The, in the days when the judges ruled, that was just the worst of times, period. It was terrible. Go read um, the book of Judges, and it's, just, it's a miserable um, book. The very last verse of the book, one page over from what we just read, 21 and 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did 
what was right in his own eyes. Right, so the setting of Ruth, it is truly a dark time. Right? Not only is it the time of the judges when there's great sin and rebellion and judgment and wickedness, but there's also a famine in the land. Leviticus um, 26, 3 and 4, in a section that the ESV titles, Blessings for Obedience, it says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Well, a few verses later, there's a, there's a section a section that's titled Punishment for Disobedience. And verse 20 in that section says, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. In 2 Kings 8.1, the prophet Elijah says, The Lord has called for a famine. Right? Scripture is pretty clear um, that famine comes from God. And it's impossible to deny um, the connection between the days when the judges ruled and the famine. Because of this, because of the sin and the wickedness, then this. Israel has been disobedient again, and God is again justly responding to that disobedience as he said he would from the beginning. And there's great irony here, right? Because this famine comes to and afflicts Bethlehem. Well, what does Bethlehem mean in the Hebrew, right? It literally means the house of bread. The house of bread now has no bread. And in the middle of this all-around bleak situation, we're introduced to this, this small little family. A man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their sons Malon and Chilion. And this family is basically forced into making a difficult decision. And they choose to leave their home. They choose to leave the promised land. The land that was given by God and promised to be a blessing. And instead they go to Moab. And not only that, but once there, these two sons both marry Moabite women. Now listen, the story doesn't say one way or the other. The narrator's not like, oh, that was a terrible decision. These, these people are awful. What a, what a sinful call. No, but as we're about to see, the implication seems to be pretty clear whether this was a good idea or a bad idea. Moab did not have um, the best history with Israel, right? They were, they were the enemy. Uh, and to seek refuge with the enemy was dangerous and likely sinful, I think. And we're first introduced to the Moabites in Genesis 19.37. This passage is coming up in Sunday evening service. I don't have any idea how to preach this passage. But it's a passage when Lot's daughters get him drunk and they sleep with him. right? And, and the first um, fruit of that illicit relationship is the son Moab. right? And his people are the Moabites. right? So that's you know not the most positive origin story. Then in Numbers 25, it is the Moab women who seduce uh, the men of Israel. They lead them into sexual morality and worship of the false god Baal. In Judges 3, probably not long before this story in Ruth, it was Moab that came in and conquered and ruled Israel for 18 years. Right? These are the people and the place that they were going to. Thus, it's not all that surprising when just everything falls apart. In three short verses, Naomi's whole world comes crashing down. First, her husband dies. Then, both of her sons follow shortly. Naomi is now left a widow. We've talked before how in this culture, this society, the worst thing to be um, was a widow. It was not a, a good um, environment to, to not have a husband. So she's lost her whole family in this short span. She's separated from the people of God. She's outside of the land of God, and she has lost everything and has little hope. But again, get out of the mind of the, sometimes I read this, oh, this is a nice little fairy tale. 
No, listen, if we're Christians and we believe that the Bible is true, then this story actually happened. She lost everything. Right? This woman has nothing. Right? She, death is, is devastating. Um, but, but multiple deaths that leave you utterly alone is almost crippling. Right? Things are about as bad as they could be for Naomi. And it's not hard to imagine what she is thinking in this um, situation. Utter loss and aloneness, right? God, where, where are you? Right? How could you let things like this happen? How, how could a good God allow such evil to persist? Why is this happening to me? I'm, I'm one of the people of God. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. And look back at those first five verses and notice there's something glaringly absent in those first five verses. It's just not there at all, right? God's not there, right? He's not even mentioned in the first five verses. He seems to be utterly absent. Thus, this verse, this book, opens on a very dark note. Right? We tend to overlook that when we get to Ruth. Right? Oh, nice love story and the Redeemer and they fall in love and he provides. Oh, don't forget the first five verses, right? This opens very, very dark. Right? Things are not well and things are not right. And there seems to be little hope for Naomi for any improvement. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever felt like that? Right? Have you ever felt like Naomi? I felt like that in 95 yesterday. Right? It's still eight hours ago. I'm never, never going to get there. But, but in all seriousness, right, we have all experienced loss uh, like this at some point in our life. Uh, and it is an extremely difficult thing. And what I love about the Bible, about the book of Ruth, is that it takes your pain and the darkness that you're experiencing very seriously. Right? The Bible never tries to sugarcoat um, things. Um, the, it never tries to kind of avoid the fact that there is um, great evil and darkness um, in the world. Right? In some of the Eastern religions, right, evil is just this kind of, it, it's an illusion. Right? It's not really there. It's not really a thing. No, the Bible is very honest and real and says, no, this is evil and this is bad and this is dark and it is hard. Right? The Bible confronts and tackles this issue head on. And I think that the obvious lesson that we take away from these first few verses is that sometimes life is very, very hard. Right? Sometimes things do not go your way. There will be loss and death and doubt. Things are very dark for Naomi. Right? And listen, they may be looking pretty dark for you right now as well. And if they're not right now, then they were at some point in the past, and they probably will be again at some point in the near future. Right? God never promised to, to spare us from darkness and difficulty. Right? It's, it's there. It's coming. Right? And Ruth takes that very seriously. But thank goodness that that's the beginning of the story, right? And not the end of the story. Yes, the, the night is darkest before the dawn. And in verse 6, we get our first little glimmer of that dawn, this first little hint of hope, which, not surprisingly, comes along with the very first mention of God. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. God has shown up and God has acted. And this seems minor, but the mention of food in the house of bread, where there formerly was no bread, is the first sign of a potential change in the fortunes of Naomi. This, though it comes slowly, is the beginning of the dawn of a new day for her. And it's already clear that God is the one who is behind this change. He shows up and he blesses Bethlehem. He steps onto the stage and when he does, things begin to change. 
but it does come slowly. Listen, Naomi is not even yet aware of any sort of change. She's not yet feeling or experiencing this, this light or this dawn. So she just sets, she has nothing else to do. So she just sets off and she returns home with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She tries to discourage them. Just get away, there's no point in you coming. Return to your families, things will go better for you there. I have nothing to offer you. I have no way to provide for you. I have no sons, I have no future. And look at what she says in the second half of verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's basically just said that God was after her. Right? And, it was, and if God himself was after her, right, to, to follow her, to cling to her, was to potentially bring disaster upon themselves as well. But don't miss this important theological point. Naomi holds God responsible for her losses. But in so doing, she is at least implicitly admitting his presence, his participation in these events. Despite things seeming to be out of control, despite his hiddenness and seeming absence in the very first part of the story, she admits and recognizes that he is at least there and that he is involved in these events in some way. And we're going to come back to that here as we, as we wrap up at the end. So she's trying to run her daughters off. They both resist at first. She tries again in verse 15. She, she succeeds partially. Right? Orpah returns home, but Ruth stays. And listen, you can't really blame Orpah, can you? Right? She, like, she made the logical, sensible choice. She made the safe choice. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make any sense to me with you. I'm, I'm going to go back home. But Ruth for some reason, makes a very unexpected and a seemingly very risky choice. Naomi encourages her again, no, 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 follow your sister, go back home, and Ruth responds remarkably in verse 16, right? The first words out of her mouth in this story are still famous today. Listen to verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, and anything but death parts me from you. Amazing. Everyone recognizes um, the, the beauty of Ruth's words, and everyone who reads this story is rightly impressed with Ruth. But what is behind these beautiful words? What, what's going on here? Where did this come from? Right here is the real divine dawn. Here's where things really start to turn around for Naomi. Right, this, this isn't just impressive, loyal Ruth. Right? That's, that's how this passage is often preached. You listen to a lot of sermons. It's like, oh, just look at Ruth. She's so great and loyal. Be like Ruth. Right? But there's actually a whole lot more going on here than that. How is Ruth able to say this? First, what is Ruth saying? What is this? Look at it. It's a confession of faith. Right? This is covenant language. In Leviticus 26.12, God says, And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Ruth takes that language and she repeats it. Ruth has been converted. God has saved Ruth. Naomi has just told her that God is out to get her. And then Ruth responds by saying, Your God... That God that's out to get you, uh, he'll be my God. Why? He's out to get you. Why, why will he be your God? Because that God has already saved Ruth. She has experienced the grace of God. She has experienced the new birth. 
Later on in the story, we're introduced to Boaz next week in 2.12. He says to Ruth um, that she has taken refuge under Yahweh's wings. Well, that, that's pretty common Old Testament language for trusting God as covenant Lord. It is salvific language. God has saved Ruth. This is 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what Ruth has done. Thus, here again is God working behind the scenes. Everything looks bleak and dark. God seems absent, yet he has been working all along, and he has brought about the conversion of this pagan Gentile woman, and he has caused her to bind herself to Naomi. Though she does not recognize it yet, though she is not as empty as she thinks, right? She's not alone. She has Ruth, and God has clearly not abandoned her like she thinks. He is working behind the scenes for her. It's just a hint at this point. But there is light, and that light comes from God, and it displays itself most clearly in the salvation of Ruth. All right, so you now have this unlikely pair, this old Jewish woman and this young Moabite woman. And they continue on their journey, and they eventually arrive back in Bethlehem. And they cause a, a bit of a scene. They, they stir things up. But skip that scene for just a minute and jump down to verse 22. It says, this is how the, the first kind of act ends. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That little tag on at the end there hardly seems noteworthy um, to us. But in an agrarian, farming-based society, the fact that it was the beginning of barley harvest would have had great meaning. Right? In Scripture, harvest time was often used as a signpost for important events, for, for glad tidings, for good news. Right? Isaiah 9.3 compares the coming of the Messiah, that's the gospel, that is the good news, he compares that good news to the joy that comes at harvest time. Right? So it's harvest time. Things are looking up. The first chapter opens with famine and a departure, and it closes with harvest and a return. Right? It's brilliant what the author is doing here in this story. Light is beginning to dawn. God has brought food. He has brought new life to Ruth, and thus new hope for Naomi. And he has brought her home at the time of harvest. Right? God is working and slowly turning things around for Naomi. Right? What begins in great darkness ends with this little sliver and hint of light. Something good is coming. And it's clear that if anything good is going to come, it has to be God who is going to bring it. Right? So this darkness leads to the dawn. And that dawn is always God's doing. We're all good with that. We love day and dawn and light and good things. But I want to close by looking at a bit of a more difficult point. Right? We like that idea. He's bringing about our dawn. Yeah, keep doing that. But this story also makes it clear that God is working in and through our darkness as well. And look back up at what happens when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. The woman in the town, they're amazed. Is this, is this Naomi? They can probably read the trials and the suffering and the difficulties and the lines in her face. She's probably walking differently. You can just see that this is a woman who has been through something. And she replies to them in verse 20, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me. Those are, those are strong words. 
The name Naomi means pleasant, but she said, I'm done with that name. Right? She wants to be named Mara, which means bitter. And I don't think it's because she is necessarily bitter herself, but because the things that have happened to her, things have gone bitterly for her, and she attributes that very clearly in these verses um, to being God's doing. What do you think about Naomi's theology here? This, what she says here, this theology would disagree with much of what passes for Christian theology today. In the midst of her struggles, it is clear at least that she is sure of three things. First, it's very clear that God exists. She's never like, oh no, God must not exist because of all this evil and suffering. No, she's, she's firm and committed to the fact that God exists. She's also pretty clear that, that God is sovereign. Right? He, he's in control. He, he's the one working and acting and doing. And then she's pretty confident that it is God who is the one who has afflicted her. And those are the three things she's clear of in these verses. He exists, he's sovereign, he's afflicted her. And all that seems, it seems to be pretty true. And she, listen, she's, she's mostly correct. She has correctly pointed um, to the sovereignty of God, but she has forgotten one very important thing that makes the sovereignty of God look very terrifying and scary. She has forgotten the goodness of God. And she has forgotten the story of Joseph, which as a young um, Hebrew woman, she would have been very familiar with. The Lord dealt very bitterly with Joseph. Uh, he was sold into slavery. He was wrongfully accused of sexual assault. He was thrown into prison. He was forgotten. He was forsaken. He had little to no hope. But God was behind it all and working through it all. Genesis 50, verse 20, is just such an important verse in the Bible. You should underline it a hundred times and read it over and over and over again and try to figure that verse out. Right? Genesis 50, verse 20. Make sure your theology works with this verse. Remember, his brothers are up here in the promised land. They hate him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt. Then, no, famine comes again to the promised land. Here's a theme. Here's another famine. They're having to leave. They go down to Egypt because there's bread in Egypt. Why? Joseph's there. God is with Joseph. They don't know that it's Joseph. They go to him looking for food. And Joseph says to them the most remarkable thing in chapter 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Who sent Joseph into slavery? Was it not his wicked, sinful brothers? Yes, it was. But Genesis 45, 7 says, God sent me before you to preserve you. It was not you who sent me here, he says to his brothers, but God. God planned great darkness for Joseph. But through that darkness, he brought great light for his people, and he saved his people. Thus, through Naomi's darkness here, God brings about Ruth's light. Luke does the same thing in Acts, which we looked at in Sunday school. Luke kind of constructs the story so that we can't help but notice that Stephen's death is intimately related to Saul's new life. Right? Death worked in Stephen, life worked in Saul. Just so death worked in Naomi and new life worked in Ruth. Death producing life. And this is a key gospel theme. We've already seen this in Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Life, death. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Death, life. Death producing life. And that's precisely why Jesus came. Right? His death procured our life. He had to die so that we could live. His great darkness brought about our unimaginable light. 2 Corinthians 4. Um, verses 10 through 12 says, We are always carrying in the body the death 
of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What happened to every single one of the apostles? Miserable, brutal deaths. What happened as a result of that? Unbelievable life and growth. Darkness being used to bring about amazing light. And that is exactly what is going on here with Naomi and Ruth. God is at work even in the dark. Even when he seems most absent and things seem most out of control, he remains God. He remains the king and he is still working to bring about his purposes. Even in the dark, God is still God. He is so great and he is so sovereign that he is still shaping and using or ordaining even those difficult moments in your life to bring about his good purposes. Romans 8.28, which we just read, the wonderful promise um, that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? The fact that he says, the verse, what if Paul were like, oh, listen, all good things will work together for your good. Oh, thanks, Paul. That makes sense, obviously. No, he says, all things, meaning good things, sure, obviously, but bad things as well. Bad things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. God had a plan for Naomi, and he has a plan for you. You often hear people say, and I generally hate it, but it's actually kind of true. God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Now listen, that's true if you are a believer, it's true, and it's also true if you understand that that wonderful plan means wonderful eventual final outcome, but which may include lots of persecution, suffering, trial, um, difficulty, and death. Yes, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He's going to save you. He's going to make you more like Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful plan. Right? Sometimes, though, the way he does that is very difficult and very hard and very painful. And that's what we see here with Naomi. That's what we see in the life of Paul. Most importantly, that's what we see in the life of our Savior and Lord. Remember that he was the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was the suffering servant. He was betrayed, rejected, tortured, and crucified. Terrible darkness to bring about remarkable light for so many. But why? Why did all that happen? Right? The, the worst evil in all of history, the murder of the Son of God. Surely if there was a time when God was absent and things were out of his control, that had to be the time. But no. In Acts 4.23, the apostles pray to God and they say, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Herod, and Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Then again in Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. Right? The delivering up and betrayal of Jesus, the most evil act ever, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Things were not out of God's control. They were precisely in His control. Everything that happened, happened according to His plan. Why? Darkness produces light. God's still working and shaping and using these events and then bringing about these remarkable outcomes, right? Everything that happened to Naomi in these first few verses happened according to God's plan. Famine, death, difficult 
things. God was using these bad things, though, these dark things, to bring about for her good things, to bring about for her light. God is God even in the dark. But listen, sometimes people really struggle with this truth. Um, but you only have two options. Here are your two options for, to choose between. Right? Either God is not behind the difficult things that happen to you. Right? And if that's the case, that means there are things that are outside of his control, which also means that he cannot guarantee that he can fulfill his promises and bring about your good. Or God is sovereign over everything. He's planned everything. Thus, the difficult things that are happening to you are not outside of his control, um, outside of his will. God is still working. He can still guarantee that he is bringing about your good, even through the bad that you are currently facing. And listen, this isn't supposed to be a controversial truth. This is supposed to be a gloriously comforting truth. Whatever it is that you are facing, right, you are still in God's hands. No matter how dark the darkness you are going through right now, he's still there. You can still trust him. You can still lean on him, even when you're confused, even when you feel lost, even when you don't understand what he's doing, even when you don't even, where, I don't even feel him, I don't even, where is he, right? Even in those situations, you can know that he is doing something, and you can know that he is good. Listen, the only thing that is, worth, that is worse than suffering, suffering, it's terrible, but the only thing that is worse than suffering is the feeling that your suffering is it just makes something terrible, something almost unbearable. But if these truths taught in Ruth are true, in Christ, nothing that you go through is meaningless. Nothing. Right? There is always a purpose. There is always a goal. There is always hope. And it is that hope in God and His guarantee um, of your good and your eternity with Him that can get you through any darkness. Listen, darkness is coming. It's there. You're going to go through something. You're going to go through it by yourself, not understanding what this says. You're going to go through it with him, the one who has promised to bring about great light through that darkness. And Naomi, she couldn't see that. Right? She couldn't see this in the middle of her darkness. She, she's like a little ant on a giant paint canvas, and she's stuck on the black part. Right? Now all she can see is the black. Right? But we've got the full revelation. Right? God has pulled back and shown us the whole Canvas. And when you step back, you see that the dark is just one small little part of the picture. And that when you look at it, right, you realize that that dark only serves to make the light shine even brighter. The contrast of the dark makes the light so much more glorious. Right? And we can see that now because we've got the whole story. We've been told the outcome. Right? We know that we win. We know that Revelation 21.4 is coming. You will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. There's a lot of death, and there's a lot of mourning and crying in the beginning of Ruth. But then here is this promise that those things will be no more. And knowing that, understanding and being confident that that day is coming when these things will no longer exist makes the experience of tears and death and mourning and pain more manageable in the present. Paul said the like we just read in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he doesn't say that it's nothing or don't worry about it, but you know he calls them sufferings. The sufferings of this present time, as bad as they are, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen, if we really knew and if we really understood how great the end was, we would have much less 
difficult to walk on the path that gets us to that end. If Naomi um, could look ahead and read the end of chapter 4, right, she would understand that she was far from empty and that God was bringing about something through her, through her darkness that was far greater than she could ever imagine. Right? The darkness actually serves to make the light so much greater. Like when, I, when I watch a basketball game, when I watch the, the, the Heels, when I watch Carolina, I want them to win by 40 every time. Everything you get, you're like, all right, that's great. But when it's like this really close and difficult and hard and back and forth and it looks like we're going to lose and all is lost or we're down 10 with a minute to go and then something remarkable happens and then we win and then there's light, well, what just happened? That game was infinitely better than a game that was just a blowout. All the difficulty and the suffering and the trials and the uncertainty just makes that end so much more glorious. Right? And that's what God is doing. He is bringing about a remarkable end. Uh, for those who are his. Right? The, 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 what he does through Naomi is so far greater than she could ever imagine. Because as we said at the very beginning of the book, the, the book of Ruth is it's ultimately about the gospel. Right? God was using his ordinary, seemingly unimportant family in, in his grand plan of redemption. Right? Through these obscure events in this obscure town of Bethlehem, the world would be changed forever. Because a few generations later, right, in that same town, right, would be born Naomi's great grandson, who would be David, who would be the greatest king that Israel would ever know. But just forget about that. That's not even, that's not the point, right? Yeah, that's good. That's important. But that's not the point. That's not where we're going. Because another thousand years later, in that same still, small, obscure Bethlehem, there would be another birth. There would be the birth. The town that formerly began our story with no bread was soon to produce the very bread of life. And we actually meet Ruth in passing again in the New Testament. There's one word her name is mentioned in passing in Matthew 1, verse 5. Right? She shows up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the whole point of Ruth, is to get to that one little part in Ruth in Matthew 1, 5. The whole point of Ruth is to get to Christ, right? The one who would come and save his people from their sins. The one who would come and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who was the bread of life, that if you feast upon him, you will never go hungry again. He is the bread that, that fulfills the spiritual famine that we are all experiencing. That's the point of Ruth. That's where the book is ultimately going. That is the light for which God endured with great patience much darkness. But it was all worth it. It was all part of the plan. Everything was moving and building and progressing to get to Jesus. He is the very center of history. And he deserves to be the very center of your life. Listen, he's the only light that makes the darkness that you are facing worth it. He is the only place that you can find real comfort and hope. Yes, he is God um, in the goodness and of the bright and of the glorious day, but he is still God in the dark. He is still there. He is still present, even when you can't see him, even when you don't understand what he is doing. He's working. And if you are his, he promises that he is working for your ultimate good. Because right? that's what the gospel is, right? Not what you do, 
right? It's, it's what he has done for you. That's what we see happening here in Ruth. Look at what God has done for Naomi, though she doesn't even recognize it yet. He's brought her home. He's brought her bread. He's brought her um, security through Ruth. And he's about to bring her something even more amazing. These are the things that God is doing for Ruth. And that's what the gospel is, what God has done for you to save you. Even when you were complaining and moral and bitter and confused, God is still that is glorious news. That is an amazing comfort that you must have when you face, when you will um, face these darknesses and difficulties in your life. He's the only place where you can find refuge and comfort. Right? He's the only source of light. Right? Let's go to him in prayer and thank him um, for that. Father, we thank you um, for the glorious truths in the book of Ruth. Um, Lord, we thank you for recording these, for revealing yourself um, to us um, through um, your word. Um, Lord, Father, we confess um, that we are so prone to get distracted and think and uh, get concerned with things that are so far less important um, than you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Um, Father, I pray right now in this moment, uh, Father, that you would focus our minds and our hearts on you, um, Lord, and what you have done um, for us to save sinners, to reconcile who, those who were once your enemies and made us um, your allies, your friends, your sons and daughters. Um, Lord, so I thank you that even in this random story written a thousand years ago, um, Lord, it's there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. Um, and you have great things to say to us um, through it. So, Father, I pray in these coming weeks, um, these three weeks, that you would um, really bring this text alive um, to us. Um, Father, apply these truths um, to our hearts. Show us your great power and sovereignty. You are God, um, Lord. But thank you as well that you are good, um, Lord, and you have our best interest in mind, that you are working to bring about um, what is best for us, and that is our salvation, that is our um, conformity to Christ, our, our sanctification, um, Lord. And we ask that you would do that in our lives and do that um, for us. Lord, I do, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you, um, Lord, that you would do a work, of, uh, a miraculous work in their heart. Bring people from death um, to life. Grant faith and repentance. Father, draw people to you. Um, Lord. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word in Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and who has come to rescue us and save us. That's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.